Listen to challenging topics and insightful conversations. We don't just report the news. We provide the real story behind the headlines by talking to global decision makers and influential figures. This is The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, is the global economy ready for degrowth? How a radically different approach could help save the planet. Every nation strives for economic growth. But is the world's fixation on expansion all it's cracked up to be? In the past 60 years, global GDP has risen 5,000%. But at the same time, the gap between rich and poor has widened, inflation has soared, and scientists warn we're on track for climate catastrophe. Which is why a growing number of business brains are talking about degrowth, the notion that growth isn't always good. That perhaps firms, industries and wealthy nations don't need to increase production every year and that well-being should come before profit. The way to do it is to shrink rather than grow economies. So we use less of the world's energy and resources. Think of the global economy like a newborn child who needs to feed regularly and consistently to become bigger and stronger. But once they've become an adult, carrying on consuming at that pace could be detrimental to their health. That's why people, on the whole, as they grow up, adopt a more balanced diet, only eating what we need to maintain good health. So for economies to stay in shape, Degrowthers say they can help themselves, citizens and the planet by becoming more sustainable. They argue there are some industries at the point where they don't need any more building up. Like defence, they'd instead feed surplus resources into areas like renewable energy and public transport, which do need nourishing. But the coronavirus pandemic showed the devastating consequences of holding back economic growth in this way. As COVID-19 spread rapidly, nations imposed strict lockdowns, which restricted productivity across sectors and resulted in a devastating economic downturn that we're all still reeling from. Degrowth protagonists say recessions are chaotic and destabilizing, but degrowth can be a purposeful strategy to rebalance economies and achieve social and ecological goals. So can high-income countries prosper without growth? Or is degrowth a rich nation's pipe dream? Joining me now is Jorgen Randers, author of the seminal work, The Limits of Growth, and amongst many other roles, head of the Centre for Ecological Civilization at Peking University. Thanks ever so much uh, for coming on the agenda. Now, I want to talk to you about the trajectory um, that the world economy is on and what it means for financial markets, for the environment, for society. Are things going to get worse before they get better? Oh, for sure. Uh, so unless we do something very radical, very different from what we have been doing over the last 40 years, uh, we will see that average well-being in the world, both in the rich and the poor world, will start declining over the next generation or so. And unless we do a number of things, that decline might actually risk triggering social unrest and social collapse. So, yes, I think unless we do something very strong, we, we, we are headed 
towards a sad future, so to speak. Well, you've talked about the limits of, uh, to growth for, for more than half a century now. Why is growth still the be-all and end-all of mainstream economic and political thinking? And uh, what has that pursuit of growth really given us? Uh, so the, the reason why we have been pursuing economic growth is, of course, that this is the only well-known method of removing poverty. And uh, that was the main goal 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when the era of rapid economic expansion started. Interestingly, we did not stop doing this once we reached reasonable income levels. You know, once the poverty problem had been solved, call it 30 years ago, 40 years ago in the rich world, we did continue the economic growth. But for different reasons, now the prime reason was that this secures employment so that we do not get the unemployment, which typically occurs when economic growth rates decline. We also needed economic growth in order to ensure our pensions so that when we got older, that there would be someone who would take care of our costs. Uh, and in the end, even governments were interested in economic growth because it increases the tax uh, base so that it is fully possible for the government to actually solve some of the other problems. So the reason why economic growth has been pursued so strongly is very rational and it's rooted in the fact that this is a proven way of solving a number of problems. The negative effect of, of growth is that it requires more resources. So while we're increasing the economic capacity to do things, we also increase the burden on the planet, the amount of resources that we use every year and the amount of pollution that we emit every year and the land area that we need in order to grow food and the amount of pesticides that we need to put on the land in order to make food more food. So we are in the interesting situation that what has proven a very good way of, of solving our main problem of poverty uh, has also at the same time increased the footprint on the planet to such an extent that the planet is starting to hurt. And that's where we are now. But in some parts of the world, the problem is not too much growth, is it? It's too little. So you're absolutely right that uh, the tool of economic growth has been pursued by most nations on the surface of the earth with different starting points and different success. So uh, the, you're right that it's the, the Western world that has gotten farthest in this uh, development. But China, as an example, is now getting to the point where China is as rich today on a per capita basis as the EU, as Europe was in, in the 1960s. So we're, they're starting uh, to solve the problem. Still, there is a large fraction of the world's population, perhaps half, uh, that still is very poor and still need a lot of economic growth in order to solve basic uh, existence, uh, subsistence uh, problems. And so we need to have two thoughts in the same 
in the head at the same time. We need to allow the poor world to develop as quickly as possible, you know, using economic growth. And we need in the rich world to stop hurting the planet. So we need to develop the technologies and the capacity to grow without growing the footprint. But if economic growth leads to these higher standards of living, lower death rates and, and so on, how would our society function um, in a world where that economic pie stops growing? There is a difference between um, the economic growth rate, the expansion in the value added, you know, something that is measured in dollars per year, uh, and the development of the footprint, the physical effects of this growth measured in tons per year. Uh, and what we need to do in the future is, of course, to continue the economic expansion without expanding the footprint. And many people have spent a lot of time arguing that this is not possible. And consequently, it's useful to point to the simplest example that shows that this is absolutely possible. It is it has been possible in the West over the last 20 years, 40 years, to um, double the GDP per person, to double the economy, while at the same time keeping climate emissions in that part of the world essentially constant. So it has been possible by shifting from the footprint from using coal, oil and gas to using sun and wind and heat pumps and electric cars, etc., to stop the growth in the footprint while at the same time maintaining economic development. So degrowth, that's, that's what we're talking about here. That really requires, though, a, com a com drastic change in attitudes and, and in lifestyles and um, habits that, that are quite hard to break. Is this transition maybe too much for economies who are addicted to growth? Again, I do not like the language. Degrowth is a very useless uh, label, you know, because it seems to indicate that one needs to contract all of human activity in order to save the planet. This is not true, although many people argue this they are wrong and I am right. It is possible to reduce the ecological footprint while at the same time maintaining employment, maintaining income growth for the poorest people. The simple reason why this is not liked by most people is that it will require that you take from the rich and give to the poor. That in order to make this transition happen fast enough, you know, it means that the rich have to give away some of their benefits in order to help poorest 90%, you know, develop a little bit faster. Let's pause there for a moment, but stay with us as still to come here on the agenda, quality versus quantity. We look at China's future plans for growth. Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. Welcome back to The Agenda. Let's continue our conversation with one of the world's most eminent economists, Jürgen Randers. Let's talk about that high quality growth. And I'd like to zone in on China, because China's President Xi Jinping has said that's going to be the focus now, high quality growth as opposed to high speed growth. What do you understand by that? 
again, I support what China is trying to do. And in my language, what they're trying to do is to reduce footprint per unit of GDP so that they can continue to expand the footprint, so they can continue to expand the economy while at the same time reduce the damage caused to the planet. Uh, so that's what high quality growth is sustainable development in the Western world. Ecological civilization is simply to organize the satisfaction of human beings' consumption and other needs in a manner that does not expand the footprint. So you need to do it with you know, instead of increasing the amount of fertilizer that you use, instead of increasing the amount of coal and oil and gas that you use, you need to expand well-being in other ways. Many people argue that this is not possible. I disagree, and recent history disagrees. It is possible, but it does require that you move people, labor and capital, from dirty activities, fossil-based activities, to green activities. So, and this is totally obvious. It has been obvious for 50 years. And so you can ask the question, why doesn't this shift of labor and capital, a few percent of the total labor and capital of the world, why does it not shift from dirty activity to clean uh, activity and the answer is that it is not profitable from a business point of view to do so with the current tax system and the current capitalist market driven profit driven system in place so you need to shift you know some of this labor and capital through regulation basically yeah. this is and it is fully doable and in my mind this is exactly what the chinese are doing they have decided that the future is electric the future is solar cells and windmills and electric cars and batteries and they have basically paid for the development of those industries up front you know yeah. And and spent tax money or, or governmental money in China to build the capacity to do these things, even though they are not profitable at the time when this happens. So in terms of that shift in strategy and what's happening in China, I wonder what you think the impact will be on the global economy? <laughs> the, the, the impact on the global economy is that in a few years or in a decade, the West will discover that China is way ahead of them in the production of those things that we are going to use in the future. So they will be the world producer of the windmills, of the solar panels, of the batteries, of the electric cars, etc. And the West will be asking themselves the question, why aren't we producing these things? Don't we have the capacity to produce exactly those things? Uh, and at the time, 10 years in the future, they will be saying that we are not doing this because we can't compete with the Chinese. They started 10 years before us and they have, of course, built the factories and they have matured the production so that they are unbeatable from a 
profit point of view at that point in time. And they got there simply by starting this while it was not profitable to do so in the West. And they knew it, uh, and uh, that our legislators had not yet gotten the political support to pass the legislation that would ban the production of fossil cars, would ban the use of coal uh, power, etc. But do you think that the world understands where, where China is in terms of the transition to a post-carbon economy? No, I, um, you're absolutely right in your supposition that the rest of the world does not understand what is going on, at least uh, most people in the, the Western world. Whether the poor world understands it or not, uh, I don't really know. And it does perhaps not matter so much in this debate that we're currently having. No, so what is happening is, of course, that the West is pursuing capitalism. That means a market-driven economy where it is the profitability of a certain activity that decides whether or not something should be done. While we are at a point in global history where what is needed is not profitable. You know, those simple things that needs to be done to solve the problems are not profitable from the investor point of view. And consequently, it will not be done by market economies. Luckily, we are seeing, in even in the West, that the, over the last couple of years, we're starting to see a shift away from brute, unregulated capitalism into a situation where the state starts to, to understand that what needs to be done is to use taxpayers' money to subsidize those things that we want uh, and need in order to, to, to save the world. And the most positive thing that has happened in my mind over the last several years is, of course, the, the US adoption of the Inflation Reduction Act, Act, which is, of course, code for a subsidy to green activity in the United States. So it's a violation of traditions. It's a violation of the sanctity of the market and, and the liberal democratic thinking that is really important in the long run. And it is very important in helping America start to move on what has been the totally obvious uh, challenge for the last for the 50 years I have been talking about these things. So better late than never. But, but are you saying, though, um, that um, these zero carbon plans, like you mentioned in, in the United States, are, are being used as, as a bit of a pretext for, for simple economic protectionism? It is doing that at the same time. Because, of course, <laughs> if you accept my starting point, namely that those things the world needs in order to become sustainable, in order to solve the climate crisis, are not profitable from the investor point of view, then you must ask the question, how can we get those things done without profits? You know, as the main incentive. And the answer is totally obvious that the only way to do it is to subsidize the activity so that it 
looks profitable from the point of view uh, uh, of the investor. England has done this large scale in the North Sea. You are subsidizing the development of wind, offshore wind, with huge amounts. The subsidy will be paid in the future, you know, when those who build the windmills will get the right to sell that power at a much higher price than, than uh, fossil fuel would have cost at the time. But that's the same. This is the subsidy paid by UK uh, taxpayers in order to save the world. And in the same way, the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States is the same thing. You know, you're, it's tax reduction, deduction finance. So it means that the state of the United States will get less income in the future from those companies that shift from building fossil cars to building electric cars. So these are both examples of very positive and very attractive policy shifts, you know, where the government starts to interfere with the operation of the free market for because the free market is incapable of solving those problems that needs to be solved in order to avoid declining well-being over the next uh, 30 to 60 years. You talk about climate well-being, but but I wonder um, if you have any sense that maybe we have missed the boat in terms of saving the planet, because you know the glaciers are still melting, the world is still um, warming up, and all of the things you're talking about um, are you know are are expensive, are disruptive. When I believe that you think that we may have left it too late. It, 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 during my life, I have always been worried that we that global society would respond to the global footprint crisis, you know, the finiteness of the planet, much too late. So that what would happen is that total activity levels would exceed the sustainable carrying capacity of the planet. And once you are in high unsustainable territory, you know, then you will be forced down either by a collapse in the market or by uh, natural forces. We are, the world is sadly uh, in overshoot in one very important area, namely climate. We are already emitting very, very much more CO2 every year than the world can absorb in its oceans and its forests. And consequently, the rest accumulates in the atmosphere and will increase the concentration of CO2 for as long as we emit any man-made uh, gas. And as a consequence, the temperature is going to continue rising until we stop emitting. But once we stop emitting, the temperature will not come down because then there is all this CO2 in the atmosphere. And so the temperature will stay high and we will have a higher level of forest fires, a higher level of droughts, a higher level of, of things. So yes, we will have to live with a certain amount of damage. Luckily, man is adaptable. So it means that after a decade of lacking snow in this country, you know, we stop go skiing. You know, that's a welfare loss, but it doesn't really end the world. And the problems in 
many other parts of the world, like the forest fires in California. Yes, but after a while, most of the forests will have burnt. And so, you, you, know, you know, so you have then to live in a damaged environment, but it doesn't really stop life. So the only real hope in all of this is, of course, the very beneficial fact that the, the global population is actually going to start declining in another 30, no, before 2050, we will reach peak population. And then the global population will go down very quickly over the next, the rest of this century, which is a huge advantage because the footprint, you know, the burden we place on the platform is proportional to the population. Jorgen Randers, absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Coming up soon on the agenda, sustainable energy for all, how the world can prepare for the green transition. But for now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye. <laughs>